So for people that don't know about what you do and um, who you are and what you specialize in, can you kind of just go into that and maybe talk about Stinky, your yeah. Malinois? Yeah, yeah. So um, I got into dog training a while ago and um, throughout my oh, throughout my years, I've been lucky to have a lot of experience with different types of stuff. Um, and so that's how I got into raising um, Stinky, uh, who was my last Malinois and I had him for about a year. Okay, you need to stop. Um, and he, after about a year, went into um, police work. So he's currently being finished as a dual-purpose patrol dog, meaning he'll do apprehension and detection, um, either narcotics detection or explosives or both. Um, and then I got this guy a couple weeks ago. Um, and him I'm hoping to keep um, and trial in um, the sport PSA with. Um, and that's what I was going to do with Stinky if I – ended up keeping him, but he was better off doing what he's doing now. And hopefully he'll be good for, for the, for the sport and, um, that kind of thing. Fine. Um, but yeah, so now I personally, that's, this is just kind of what I do for fun really, but professionally right now I specialize in surface dogs. So raising, placing, um, taking green dogs that are older and placing them and, um, helping people who train their own and all that kind of stuff. And, that's actually how I got started. Um, my interest in dog training initially was working with guide dogs for the blind, which is, I don't think it's over the whole US, but I think it's like pretty large in North America. Um, and they just train um, just guide dogs. So, and they take um, puppy raisers as volunteers. So that's how I got started when I was really young with my family. Mm -hmm. Can you go over the process of what it's like getting a service dog? like? selecting a ser service dog like who is selecting it is it the person that says like I need a service dog or a doctor that says this person needs a service dog yeah so the her sweetness of the laws in America mean that it's super what it's super um open-ended like there's no select path to do it um, and you can pretty much do almost anything and it's technically legal. And so, okay, all right. <laughs> and so that makes it super easy for owner trainers to, all right, go away, go away. <laughs> that makes it super easy for, huh? Sorry about that. Um, no, no, you're good. Yeah, so that makes it super easy for anybody to get a service dog, whether or not they have, you know, $30,000 or not. Um, but it also means that, people often do it incorrectly, um, even with the best of intentions. So the ideal method that you would go through is to either, sometimes a doctor will suggest it, or a patient will, a client, whatever, will bring it up with their doctor and see what they think. Um, and usually somehow a doctor is involved um, and then they're approved or it's suggested or whatever. Um, and then from there, the person has to decide whether they want to train their own or get one that's already trained. Um, and so if you're going to get one that's already trained, there's a lot of programs out there. But the, the issue with them that I've found is usually that either, well, two things is either one, they're super expensive and most people can't afford them um, or they're free, but the wait list is like five years long um, because to meet that demand, you know, they can only have so many, so many dogs. And so 
or the, th the third issue is you get programs like Guide Dogs for the Blind, which are really big and place a lot of dogs, but they only do guide dogs. You know what I mean? So for someone who um, has, you know, maybe a more rare illness or something like that, there's just not organized organizations that train dogs for them. Um, and so they usually have to go and train their own, um, which is, again, is totally legal in the U.S. And I love that. Um, ideally, what then would happen is a person would reach out to a professional dog trainer, such as myself, who specializes in service dogs. Um, a lot of people say they train service dogs, but they don't know what they're doing. Um, and then from there, they would find a prospect is what it's called. It's not a legal term. It's just what we call it, um, which is a dog who has the genetic traits we believe to be a service dog, but needs to go into training. And so that could either be a puppy or an older dog. Um, I've, I'm about to actually probably raise a puppy this next year. Um, and then I've also taken dogs that were one years old or, um, you know, eight months, something like that. And then I've trained them and placed them as well. Um, you did a live with the helping pup a few weeks ago. Um, and her dog Atlas is one that I got when he was around nine months old. Um, I started him and then I placed him with her. Um, and so he was a but luckily everything else about him was kind of perfect for service work. Um, the lower drive was actually what made him so good for it. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different routes people can go and I wish more people went the right ways, but you know, it is what it is. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting that you brought up the, the helping pup because she yeah. definitely changed my perspective in terms of um, like emotional support, animal uh, service dogs, and yeah. just um, dogs that people want their dogs around. Like we're in LA, there's dogs yeah. everywhere. Like yeah. people are bringing their dogs into work. Like it's not a big deal at all. Like earlier yeah. today, I trained her at the Vons in Glendale. Yeah. Um, but after talking to Kristen and like hearing about her, like how she has to deal with other untrained dogs, it's definitely changed my mindset. Um, and also like I take training really, really seriously. Like if I'm going to bring Rika into a public place, she's on, she's yeah. in work mode. Yeah. And like I, if she is not like in that zone, like we got to leave because it's just not respectful. Good, good, good. Oh. Yeah. yeah, and I think that definitely, I mean, location probably affects it as well. But I mean, I'm in Northern California. Um, and so a similar, a similar mindset, especially if you go into like San Francisco or Santa Cruz. Um, it's like Santa Cruz is like known for being such a dog friendly city. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, what you do is rare in training her <laughs> and um, making sure that she's equipped to handle the situation she's in. A lot of people see dog friendly as any dog can go there, um, which is maybe true, but I think people should think about, should my dog go there? You know what I mean? Just because he's allowed, is that something that's good for him? Is it good for me? Is it good for everybody else? Is it appropriate? Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, I wish that was more of a, a widely spread mindset because I think that unfortunately, a lot of places are becoming less dog friendly because people bring their dogs in no matter what they're like. Um, and it's kind of ruining it for owners like you who are training your dog and are training them to be able to handle those situations. But 
I'm betting, you know, a lot of, especially outdoor dining or banning dogs now and stuff like that, where otherwise it was allowed. Um, so that's pretty unfortunate, but I mean, what can you do? Yeah. But okay. So then this brings me to my, the next question is, okay, so now we have the flight yeah. um, with Mika. Should I go ahead and um, like pay, you know, you, how does it work with getting an emotional support animal? Yeah. So what you do? because emotional support animals, animals are considered pets, um, they're not covered under what's called the Air Carrier Access Act, and that's what protects service animals. Um, but because ESAs are pets, they're not under that, and so every airline can make their own rules. So you would have to really check with the specific airline that you're flying with. Um, some of them don't allow certain breeds, or some of them have a weight limit. Um, it's, kind of, it's kind of tricky because especially like talking to them, most of them don't seem to know what their um, policy is. So it can be kind of difficult to figure out, but hopefully the website will have the information you need. But I would guess that to fly with an emotional support animal, no matter what the airline is, you would have to have a doctor's note um, and maybe vaccination records, but I'm not sure. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Um, but yeah, it really does depend on the, on the um, airline because they're allowed to make their own rules, so. Mm -hmm. And then what about for the people that are like, I don't want to deal with the paperwork? What about like putting a harness on and doing that whole ish? I mean, to be honest, I don't think you need to. I think that the laws are so relaxed that it's like so easy to do it. I think that you don't need to just take your dog on. Like, I think that you do actually have to um, sign up like when you book your flight, you can mark like whether you have an animal or a wheelchair or whatever. And so if you mark that, then you have to submit the paperwork. And if you don't, then I just think they won't let you on. Um, it has to be documented. And I think that's because, I don't know why that is. I think they have a number of animals limited per flight. So they have to document them. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's no standards for, um, emotional support animals at all so really if you just have a doctor's note and you vaccinated your dog like you can do it okay yeah all right what should i do to get rika prepared for the flight when's your flight well it's i haven't booked the flight yet oh, okay so um but i want it to be on tuesday um of next week the flights are super cheap obviously because of covid yeah. um I, and I know it's all, this whole thing is, everything is very sensitive. Um, family is very important to me. My own mental health is important to me. For sure. So, like, I want to go home. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, what should we do about Rika? Well, um, I think that if you've done a lot of training with her, she should be fine. Um, I think that also, the minimum is so low that you're already, like, way above it, um, mm -hmm. which is good. Um, but, I mean, I think that the most difficult part for her, besides the actual flight, um, would be TSA, because she either has to be patted down by a TSA employee, or she has to go through completely naked. So, no leash, no collar, um, nothing. And so... Mm -hmm depending on her skills, I would maybe not opt for the no leash part unless you're really confident that she can do it. Um, otherwise, just make sure she's good with being patted down. Um, I mean, maybe it's a little bit too late to muzzle train her for Tuesday, but um, if you wanted to, you could put a muzzle on her just for TSA. 
Um, it, again, it depends on her really and what you think she okay. can. Yeah. Um, can you repeat that again? So she has to go naked through the metal detector or how? Yeah. So there's two options that you can do, which is one, they can go through with no gear at all um, with you. And so for dogs that have like a really strong off leash shield or something, that can be a good option for them because then they get to go through with their handler and they don't have to like be out in the TSA environment on their own. Um, but because of that, they can't be wearing anything because they're going through with you. So if their collar sets off the detector, they don't know who it is. Um, so that's why they have to be totally free of any metal. Um, okay. Or if you wanted to have her keep everything on for like safety, um, then she will be patted down because she will set off the detector and then they just make sure she doesn't have like bombs on her or anything. Um, it's totally routine. A lot of dogs like it. They just, I mean, my dog just thinks he's being pet, <laughs> but yeah. you know, nervous around people or anything like that. Um, you know, you have to kind of weigh what she's able to do and what is best for her and figure out um, what you want to do. Um, TSA can't tell you one way or another what you have to do. So it's, it's totally your choice. Um, mm -hmm. But it's very specific to to you really. Mm -hmm. Cody bear pause. Can you go through with no metal or does it still have to be naked? Um, it depends. I think a lot of, um, I, it, it depends on the TSA agent. Like there's really no, um, standard. I, I unfortunately, because I've, I've <laughs> times and sometimes they pat him down when it doesn't go off but he's wearing things. Sometimes they don't pat him down if he doesn't go off, but sometimes he'll be wearing nothing and he still gets patted down. So, I mean, I've done it pretty much every way that you can and pretty much they just kind of do what they want. Um, yeah. So, you know, whether they get patted down or not isn't really up to you. Um, unless I think if they're like totally naked, they won't. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so I think it all goes back to that like idea of training your dog and if your dog is ready to be in that role of, you know, yeah, yeah, I'm in, yeah, service, that's, that's true service too. work mode. Yeah, and that's why, you know, for a service animal, that should not be a problem. You know what I mean? Either the service animal has the skills to go through with no gear on, or they should have a temperament where they're fine with being pet and being patted down. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of, this is kind of a different point, but that's part of the reason that you need a dog who's temperamentally stable because, you know, even if people aren't supposed to pet your dog, they will. And there are situations mm -hmm. like these where they have to. And, you know, your dog can't be, like, freaking out because of it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, definitely doesn't have that problem. But yeah. <laughs> she has other problems. Um, oh, okay. So eating and drinking. Yeah. What, what should we do about that? So it depends on what time your flight is. But usually I'll restrict food for a day um which is kind of drastic for some people but i just don't want to worry about it i i don't want to deal with that um so i just don't feed for 24 hours before a flight um and then you know i don't have to worry about that and he my dog has like an impeccable bladder like sometimes i think that he has a problem because he can hold it for like 15 hours um so i don't restrict water for him too much but his first flight, I didn't know how he was going to do. So I did restrict overnight um, because our flight was like at 3 a.m. So that wasn't a problem. If your flight is at like 5 p.m. or something like that, I would just give some in the morning and then none for the rest of the day. Um, but again, it depends on your dog and how long they can hold it and like whether they're going to be like 
super like thirsty the whole day. Um, mm. But kind of going into that, I avoid making the dog feel like they're thirsty. So, you know, I'm not going to run him on the treadmill and then say he can't have water. You know what I mean? Um, or play fetch for an hour and then say no water. Um, so, you know, that I like to do training or I'll just take them out to sniff at a field and, you know, they can walk around and it's not super um, like getting them panting and like um, getting their heart rate up. So it's kind of like a give and take of, you know, they don't get water, but also, you know, don't really exercise them a lot, which a lot of people like to do because then their dog will sleep. Um, but again, that goes back to the temperament thing. Your dog should be able to sleep anyway. So um, for her, um, yeah, I would suggest a, a walk in the morning maybe with a little bit more gusto in it and then a little bit of water um, and then none for the rest of the day. And then for the rest of the day, just free exercise, sniffing, not super... Uh, no, not tug or anything like that. That'll is going to get her really thirsty. Yeah, I think um, I totally hear what you're saying. I do think um, like me knowing Rika, me knowing her energy, I feel like yeah. she has to be exercised though. Like, yeah, the exercise is more important to get that you know out of the way than like the the drinking of the water. It also depends on how long your flight is. I mean, if it's like a one hour flight, then into the airport one hour out of the airport half an hour that's like maybe three hours max so that's like a normal amount of time for a dog to not go to the bathroom so that would you know with that you probably wouldn't have to restrict it all um but you know if you're flying six hours or something like that that's six hours on the plane an hour before some amount of time afterwards like for that i mean depending on the dog again um restricting probably would be a better idea but I mean, it depends on her also. And I think for pets also, because their temperament is not going to be necessarily like service dog temperament or whatever, some won't pee at the airport. So that means that they're not only being restricted from going to the bathroom at the airport, also before the flight too. Because with service dogs, usually what you're supposed to do is take them to one of the airport relief stations, like right before you go on the plane. And that way you're like, cutting them off for like the shortest amount of time possible but mm -hmm. I know some pets that get nervous or they're not used to it or whatever and they just won't go to the bathroom at all and so you have then you have the hour and a half or whatever beforehand that they also aren't going to the bathroom so I mean it it depends on depends on you really and I mean luckily um right now because of COVID they're not booking like the, the center aisles and so at least you're gonna have like not a person next to you and maybe not the whole row. So that's that's a bonus too, because then if she's shifting around or anything like that, you're not like immediately in someone else's space. Um, so that's some leeway for you guys too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, LAX has a really big, actually really nice outdoor little potty. Yeah. Dog yeah. potty spot yeah. area, so that'll be good for her. Also, when Reich is in work mode, that, that uh, really tuckers her out too. So good. thank you for making making note of that window yeah and you could, you could also show up early to the airport and train her right before the flight so that hopefully she'll go to sleep and that way you're kind of like exercising her without you know throwing a chocolate for an hour um i know yeah i actually i do that with the, every time a dog goes on a flight for the first time um i take them early and then we train um and that way you know you're kind of balancing the again the exercising versus giving them water and that kind of thing mm -hmm. 
I feel like if this most stressful part about the whole thing is like, is traveling with a pup, like yeah. having a suitcase and then having my dog there that is a puppy and how she will interact with the world and the airport. For sure. I think that's a, I think it's actually good that you're nervous just in the sense that it means that you care when people aren't nervous at all to go on a flight with their dog. Like usually that means that their dog is terrible and they just don't care. So, I mean, I'm sure that your nerves don't help, but um, for you, but you know, it, it shows that you care about her behavior, which is, which is good. Mm-hmm. And how she's being, you know, received by the public. But if it, if it makes you feel better, I have seen so many dogs in the airport and going on flights that I don't know how they survived it. So you having an actually trained dog, you'll be fine. Yeah. I mean, okay. Thank you. <laughs> that, that's my mind at ease. So today, so what we've been doing is uh, like today at the grocery store, I had, I went grocery shopping with right Yeah. So she like was next to me on the leash and we were walking with the moving car and there are other carts coming by. And so she was yeah. in the heel position because there it's, it is going to be a lot. Me rolling the suitcase, me holding the leash. Yeah. Like, yeah. So, I mean, I can't condone training her in the grocery store, but if you wanted to take her on walks and bring your suitcase with you, I mean, you oh, look yeah. good, but I mean, that would be the most um, realistic really. Um, I don't know what kind of suitcase you have, but you if you have one of those that has, like, the four wheels and you just kind of, like, push it, those are so easy um, versus ones that you have to, like, drag behind you. Um, but, yeah, I mean, what I usually do is dog on one side, suitcase on the other side, backpack, and it's good to go. Yeah. Then again, it's like I'm, I'm – who am I kidding? I'm only going to wear, like, five different shirts and workout pants. So I might just yeah. wear a backpack, but – Oh, we'll discuss that for another time. Okay. Um, how is Rika, Echo Bear, how is Rika a service dog? She's not a service dog. Um, but I want to get her registered as an ESA. Yeah, so luckily, it's super easy. There's no registration. You just have to talk to your doctor. I mean, it's really just like service dog service dogs and that there's no registration it's just a doctor's note um but then the difference with you know i mean obviously the difference they're not the same but um you know from there you just have to submit that paperwork to um the airline yeah mm-hmm. yeah so i always fly alaska um i'm from new york so i, I do that flight often well pre-covid mm-hmm. um and i was on there i called and was on their site and to to get your dog on the flight is very, very simple. Like it's the forms are right there on the website. Oh, good. Um, yeah. So uh, that's anyone that is flying with their dog or thinking about flying Alaska. Um, and then also Kristen, the helping pup had mentioned um, Southwest is also a really good um, yeah. air friend, dog friendly air airline. Yeah. 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 Different airlines have different, um, um, friendlinesses. I've actually had really good experiences with Delta, but only with the service animals. I don't know how they are with pets. Um, but if you have a service animal, anyone watching this, Delta is really good. Um, every time I've gone, 
they have come to me and asked if I want to change my seat to an aisle with no people in it. I didn't even have to ask them or anything. So that was really great. Um, but yeah, I mean, here's the thing. If you do all the paperwork and you, your dog is not a total shit show, like they're going to let you on. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I, I've been on a plane where a dog growled at my dog the, the whole four hours and it was, it was fine. So like really the, the bar, when I say the bar is low, I mean, it's, it is, it is incredibly low. Like, I don't know how, I don't know how the, the owners of the dog weren't stressed considering people like you who actually have trained dogs are stressed, but whatever. <laughs> I mean, and that's the other thing is you can't control what other people do. You, you just can't. So that's why working on your dog and focusing on them and not other people is the most important part. Um, you know, I can't control if someone brings their pet into Safeway, so I train my dog to be able to handle that. I can't control if the dog's going to growl at him on the flight, so I train him to handle that. It's, it's one of those things where it's just like a lot of people get really fired up and angry about other people. And, you know, I agree there's things that aren't legal, things that aren't ethical, but what are you going to do about it? You know what I mean? No one cares. If they cared, they wouldn't do it. <laughs> so it's really one of those things where you just have to take that energy and time and put it into your dog and and you know as long as you and your dog are fine who cares about other people right yeah okay so echo bear is saying oh how is Rika calm so Rika is calm because we have been practicing being calm good and the big thing is i mean we, we had pra been practicing calm 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 in the house when she was very very little and then i think as the dog starts getting more trained you loosen up on everything um and then i think i we, you kind of like think that the dog is all fine and then you realize the dog is not fine um and yeah i have just been making a, an effort to be really cognizant of my, me and my vibe and like if i'm a little bit stressed out or like um anxious like not to project that onto her because then she gets all anxious and it's helped in every aspect of our of our life like even with yeah. tug like i yeah. feel like she's way better at tug like the drop has the the drop or done or out has gotten so much better because it's simply like a different body energy yeah like, Earlier, I was like getting her going, getting her all wild, like running, like get you know doing like a zoomy type, and then I would just do done, and then she would stop, and like it, it was, the game was over, yeah. and yeah, it's just all energy. So yeah, that's, that was really quick. Yeah. that's something that we do with our super high drive puppies, whether they're labs for detection or Malinois or whatever. Is from day one, we start training and play with an activation cue usually like are you ready or do you want to work or something like that and then you know when they're like itty bitty puppies like eight weeks old and then you know immediately go into playing training whatever and then as soon as it's done just all done and then they go in the crate and then the idea mm -hmm. is that that transfers eventually to like an immediate off switch essentially um which you know for really high drive dogs sometimes they need that to be to have the clear window of this is when you're working this is when you're not um, and so that's something I didn't do with my last Malinois that much. Um, I did it a little bit and then I kind of slacked on that. And so, you know, he was not at all like Rika or this puppy 
and he did not he could not settle outside of his crate he was incredible in his crate he was literally like 10 hours in his crate but he had to be in his crate um so for the job he's gonna do doesn't matter that's fine um and that's part of why he's so good for that for that job is because he was very much a um go to work kennel go to work kennel that was that's his ideal life is really go out bite things sniff things go back to sleep get up and do it again um but you know for this other puppy i'm trying to get a little more out of the crate subtleness and so i mean you're right your energy totally dictates that what i do right now is um i'll put him in his kennel and i have it on my bed because i don't know i'm a fur mom um and then i wait 15 minutes for him to settle down in there and then I just open the door and then I just ignore him. I don't even look at him. I don't pet him. I don't do anything. Because um, your energy really does. If I said, puppy, come here. Come lie down. Come come, come settle. That's not going to get him to settle, right? So I just ignore him. And 80% of the time, he'll just come and curl up next to me and go to sleep. Mm-hmm. Wait, when you say you have the kennel in the bed, the like the crate? Yeah, the, the little crate just like on top of it. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. Oh, and you're sleeping next to it like that. <laughs> Yeah. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Anything else? So there's a lot of um, male people that just got male puppies. What are you going through right now at this very moment? And how can you help other people watching? Um, I think, you know, I think you really have to, the, the key to success, successfully raising a Malinois puppy is embracing the Malinois and not expecting something else. Um, because for me, I know what male puppies are like and I know what they're supposed to be. And that's why I got one. I got one specifically because I know the puppies are like this. And so for me, as a professional with experience with them, um, it's super easy. Like, you know, they wanna train, they wanna work, they're, they're energetic and, and fun and whatever. And so for me, it's, it's actually not difficult at all. What's, what's more difficult is super low maintenance puppies that don't want to do anything. That's the hard ones for me because how do I get them to want to train? You know what I mean? Um, but the, I see people having issues when they're like, why isn't my Malinois puppy? You know, why is he biting me? Stuff like that where it's like, well, you got a Malinois, so that's why. Um, and it's it's really just if you accept them for the breed they are and you work with what you have and not what you want them to be, then you'll succeed, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Malinois are really not that difficult if you are a dog person who either is a professional or has a professional working for them or whatever, and you are satisfying their drives and their needs. Um, if you can do that, it's really not that difficult. Well said. Let me see if I have any other questions for you. Mm. Did you train her yourself or with a trainer? If a trainer, did you train with the Golden Mal? Cody Bear Paws. Oh, this Cody Bear Paws. Um, I train her myself, but I, with Landy, our dog behaviorist, and then trainers who, who if you follow us, you know, Andrew, Oscar. Um, I mean, the whole village. We, we're really lucky. We've gotten input from so many amazing people. Um, I've trained all of my other pups okay does anyone have questions these are all mostly comments so to go through would be kind of pointless
Okay. Any any topics you think are important, Jasmine? Me? To cover. Yeah. Um. I mean, I don't really know what you've covered on this on this channel so far, um, or not channel. Um, um, what's it called? Account. <laughs> Account. Oh wait, Zelda the Rot. How to ensure you have reliable retrieve or any other command? Um. A, a combination of positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement again it's a balance you know um having incentive to do something and having incentive not to do something else um and together you get you get the behavior you want with retrieves um i pressure them after i've free shaped it and so um it kind of makes it really secure and really solid like you know my dog will hold something i mean i've had videos of it i'll put raw meat in his mouth and he knows not to drop it until he's told to um, and it's really just clarity and keeping expectations um, um, consistent. The difficulty I see people have is when they don't even realize they're doing this, but sometimes they'll be like, oh, like, you know, usually they have, let's say for, you know, a heel, it's like, okay, I want him here and ignoring this and doing this and doing this. But then they switch environments and they're like, oh, well, today, let's just let's let him do this and this, but not this, you know, and they don't, the dog doesn't know that they're in a new environment. You know what I mean? Like keep the commands consistent and you'll get consistency. Mm -hmm. Okay. We have a question from Rachel Evans. Um, do you have any advice for training dogs that aren't into training? Um, depending on why they're not into training, um, it depends on what you want to do with them. If you want obedience, there's any dog can have obedience. You just have to use a variety of methods and tools and uh, methodologies. If you want to do like trick training and fun stuff like that with them, not every dog wants to do that and you can't force them to. Um, you know what I mean? Like I think that every dog should have obedience whether or not they want the obedience because it's a safety thing. Um, but, you know, I'm a big believer in not making dogs do things they don't want to do when it comes to optional things. If your dog doesn't like agility, don't make him do agility. If your dog doesn't like training tricks, don't train tricks. Um, and that's, again, part of why you get, you're supposed to get the dog that's right for you because, you know, you can't make them do things they don't want to do and it's not fair to. So, I mean, with obedience, I would reach out to a professional because they'll be able to evaluate your situation specifically. But if you're, if you're talking about sports and tricks and other things like that, you might just have to say, not this dog, you know? Okay. Um, my Aussie dog, do you recommend a chew toy on the plane? Some people do. I, I don't, I don't, um, I don't not recommend them. Um, I just don't see a benefit to them. Um, I mean, it, it depends on the dog, but I know that for Ryan specifically, he chews on like Nyla bones and stuff. Like when he feels like it, he doesn't really like them that much because he likes chews that taste like something and that he can consume. Um, but all the chews like that are really smelly. And I don't think it's respectful to give a chew like that on an airplane because, you know, you're what the air in the plane is the only air you get. So, you know, if you're putting like bully stick odor into that plane, it's going to be there for the next six hours. Um, so if your dog would chew on an odorless chew, with enthusiasm, sure, you could you could do it, but I find more success in just keeping the dog calm, petting them, maybe giving them food for staying calm, but it's kind of the same as what you're saying is matching energy. Sometimes chews and food and all this reinforcement, all this, all this 
positive association stuff can spin the dog up and actually make them more of whatever they're feeling. So, you know, it's, you have to figure out what's best for your dog. I know a lot of dogs who would get too excited over chews or rewards. They just need to learn how to be neutral. So with puppies in the kennel, I'll give them chews sometimes. And this is like, this is related, I promise. But I'll give them chews sometimes. But for the most part, I want the crate to be calmness. No, not you get a chew every time you go in, get excited. Just this is sleep time. You know what I mean? And I think that being on the plane is similar in that you might give them a couple treats during takeoff just just for fun. But really, the, the important part is that they're learning to relax. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this is a really interesting question. This is from the golden life of Luca. As the person that does corrections for a puppy, have you had any situations where the dogs seem to not really enjoy just chilling with you? Okay. Wait, what? I think this is, so I, I give corrections to Rika. I correct her with leash pops. Yeah. I think this person is referring, is asking because of that, does Rika not like chilling with me? Oh. She's not a young puppy though. Rika's not a young puppy. She's, well, she's eight months, but we were training her. I mean, from the start, day one we started, we had structure for her. Yeah. 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 Um, like, how does it work with your puppy? Do you correct at all? Or is it just all fun? Mm, I mean, I'll, I'll like smack him a little bit if he's being too noisy, like in his crate or something. But like, um, maybe I shouldn't have said that on here, but. Okay, but this is the real stuff. I, I'm yeah. sorry, but like, I, I, I love you guys so much. I love you trainers so much. But like, I, I it, it's, nobody talks about the real shit. Nobody yeah. is honest about it. Yeah. Like and this person if they're saying like uh, you know yeah. they're great and and they have a lot of wisdom but you know they they do hide a lot of stuff because if they don't no one's gonna listen to them for for the stuff that they do know about you know what i mean um and it's not like i'm like beating him but you know if he's screaming in his crate for five minutes i'm gonna give him a little shove um and then he's quiet um but you know i think it really depends on the 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 why why are you correcting this dog? Because the reason why people say don't correct puppies is because um, they don't know what they're talking about. And because they assume that the puppy has not yet learned what they're supposed to be doing or why they're getting the correction. And that's most of the time true. So if you're like correcting a nine week old puppy for not holding a sit, okay, stop, you know, that's not, that's not appropriate. But if you've got a four month old and they've been working on this and this and this, and they know this and whatever and this, and you give them a correction, if they respond to it well, it's because they understood it and it worked for them. If they don't respond well, it's probably because they didn't understand it. And so, you know, all these rules about this is when you can use this collar and this is when you use this collar and this age specifically. Dogs don't hit six months old and magically become ready for whatever. You know, it depends on how you've been raising them and what their temperament is like and what they're able to process and all that kind of thing. Like um, a, a, a pet dog that you I've been raising from eight weeks old and you know the finesse isn't important and whatever they can be ready for an e-collar at six months because we've been working on obedience for that long whereas a detection dog a lot of detection puppies you don't put a lot of obedience on them in the beginning because you want them to have that like free spirit in them which sounds stupid but whatever um and so they probably wouldn't be ready at eight months or six months because you haven't been training that with them um it it just depends on the dog and i think that 
if you're correcting appropriately, it's not going to affect your relationship and it's actually going to improve it. Agree with you. Okay. Um, I have a six month old male Husky. How can I provide corrections? He's 64 pounds. I mean, it would depend on what the correction is for, what you've been training already, um, lots of different things. Uh, leash pressure is always kind of my go-to. If, if I'm handling a dog for the first time and it doesn't know anything or it doesn't know me or, you know, whatever, leash pressure is probably the most intuitive way for a dog to interpret something um, because it's physical and their neck is sensitive and it's like, it's pretty immediate. With e-collars, you have to condition them. There's a conditioning process they have to, they have to go through and it takes like weeks. With prong collars, like the conditioning process is kind of just like walk around and let them figure it out because it, it is really that intuitive and you don't have to do a lot of, um, um, a lot of different conditioning for that. So, I mean, if you wanted more specific advice, I would reach out to a professional, but collar pressure is the most intuitive for every dog. I'm just so stunned at this, at, at the comments about the prong. What? Uh, just uh, people are really, really upset by the prong. Um, any tips on? People are upset about everything. Yeah. Okay. Any tips on preventing a dog from being e-collar wise? Um, have the collar on 24 seven or as close to it as you can get. Um, my, golden retriever has worn his collar from sunup till sundown since he first started conditioning and he will continue to for the rest of his life um do i use it then no in fact i actually haven't even pushed the button in three days but he wears it anyway because that's how you build neutrality um i can't wean him off of his e-collar because he doesn't know what it is he doesn't know what an e-collar is um his collar goes on and it comes off and that's that's life to him it's not connected to the stimulation so on the off chance that I mean, you know, not that he would run out actually. So, you know, whatever, but let's say he runs out towards the street and he's not wearing it. He doesn't know he's not wearing it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, and part of the, part of the benefit with e-collars that you don't get from any other type of corrective tool is that there's like an act of God um, um, aspect to it where the, it's not immediately being connected to you. If you pop your dog's prong, they know who did it, right? But if you hit the button and your and the remote is like in your pocket or something, they don't necessarily know that you did it. They know that it happened and they know how to fix what they've done, but they don't necessarily associate it with you. And so the benefit of that is you kind of get this like ability to kind of create the e-collar as an environmental thing for them so that whether or not they're actually wearing the collar, if you've raised them appropriately, they don't know when they are and are not wearing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Larry uh, Crone brought up that like suspicious yeah. behavior, like with yeah. wires or like digging a hole. Yeah, uh, yeah. We haven't haven't used the e-collar yet, but we plan to. Okay. Yeah, it's my favorite. It's my favorite. What do you do if a dog ignores collar pressure? Um, it it depends on. It depends on the dog and and what the collar pressure is for. So, like some people, I mean, you know, it's kind of like a. It depends on 
the trainer really, but there's people who teach dogs to yield to leash pressure and people who teach dogs to resist it. And so, you know, those are two completely opposite behaviors. Um, and so if a dog is just completely ignoring it, it's highly likely that they just don't feel it. Um, and so, you know, I use a lot of slip leads and then I use prongs as well. And a lot of people don't understand that when I'm evaluating whether a dog needs a slip lead or a prong, it's just their physical sensitivity. It's not that dogs that need prongs are like more difficult dogs because oftentimes they're actually some of the most trainable and fun. It's just that if a dog has been pulling for three years, they might not feel slippery pressure just because they actually just can't feel it. Um, Mm. And that's kind of actually the same with e-collar levels. People are like, oh, dogs above 10 are so difficult. No, it's just that they can't feel it until 10. You know what I mean? Um, Mm. It's, it's really just all about physical sensitivity. Um, And that's again, why people say don't use prongs and puppies is because usually they're so sensitive that they don't need it. Um, But you know, and that's why, like, it's more likely for an older dog who's had thicker skin and however many years of being desensitized to leash pressure and whatever, um, are more likely to use a prong because, you know, they have that desensitized aspect to their neck, whereas puppies don't. Um, but, you know, it's really just about physical sensitivity. And luckily, prongs are one of the, the tools where you don't have to really condition them to it. And there's, you know, no really wrong way to do it. You can just kind of put it on them. Um, and it might not be the most effective, but you're not going to hurt them. Nothing's going to happen. Um, so if you, if you are having trouble with flat collar or slip lead, put them on a prong and see how that goes. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. I'm laughing at wild with Winston. Um, and I'm going to go with wild with Winston's questions. What did, um, so what do you use for your e-collar setup? Bungee, biothane, comfort pads, wings? I use wings on every dog, and then I use the canine tactical gear bungee thing, um, the bungee collar. Um, but I've had a lot of people actually say that didn't work for them. Um, it, it works for me. I don't know. I didn't like the bungee one that has like the quick release buckle because when my dog would roll or scratch, it would like it would like come off. He would like hit it with his foot and it would come off. Okay, Bodie. Um, but like the canine tactical gear one is. Um, um, a cobra buckle so th- they can't take it off it's like even accidentally because um, I've had him lose it in like a field and I didn't realize until we got home and it was a whole thing um, but the for me it's really about whether it can accidentally come off or not yeah that's kind of it Maya asked dog do you use prong and e-collar together I've seen some use both I'm wondering if um, I'm also wondering if that can damage the collar um <laughs> collar can't be damaged <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm laughing at the comments. No, me too. Um, <laughs> Bodhi, you have to watch. Like, you can just you can just hit the X, and then you don't have to watch this anymore. It's, um, yeah, it's- we're laughing because the, um, so Bodhi, the German Shepherd, doesn't think it's okay to use a prong collar. Yeah, I, I think look at the dog in front of you. Stop. Don't care about what I'm doing with my dog. Yeah, I don't know what you think, but no one is making you watch this live or use a prong collar. So hopefully, free to do whatever. <laughs> Um, what was the question? Um, it was, do you use a prong and e-collar together? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I really like the e-collar. It's one of my favorite tools for how versatile it is. And so usually I'll do e-collar and then either prong or slip lead, depending on, again, the dog sensitivity and that kind of thing. Um, I like the slip lead because it's so, like, easy to put on and off and I'm lazy. Um, but sometimes some dogs work better with prongs. Um, I know also, like, 
you know, I work with disabled handlers a lot. So people who are like in a wheelchair, sometimes they like using the prong, even if they don't correct the dog with it, just because if the dog were to hit the end of it, um, the dog will feel it harder and won't pull them out of their chair, essentially. Um, but different tools, different people. That's the beauty of dog training is it's custom. Exactly. Okay. Question. A lot of questions I get basically boil down to building engagement and making yourself valuable. What's the, um, I can't, what's the elevator pitch version of building engagement? Um, think about everything in your dog's life that they get reward and reinforcement from drinking water going to the bathroom eating food resting physical affection sniffing free time walks play all these different things your dog re receives reward from it and that's why they do it however many of those you can make yourself a pinnacle point in that's going to build engagement so hand feeding instead of feeding in a bowl playing with your dog instead of having them play with another dog um letting your dog out to potty versus just letting them out in the backyard, you know, having them wait and release for water instead of just having it free. There's like an infinite amount of things in your dog's life that they receive reward from. And if you can tailor as many of those to you as you can, your dog's going to see value in you because of those. Okay, from Echo Bear, what is your main tip on protection work? I've done every other training except protection. Um, you need to work with a professional. That is um what's it called not debatable i don't know see. <laughs> non-negotiable <laughs> non-negotiable that's it you have to work with a professional i i i i really don't care how much experience you have with any type of training you have to work with a professional for protection training just because you cannot appropriately decoy your own dog so you know the the, the greats of dog training the ones going to championships for this stuff, they have to work with another person. It doesn't, you know, it's not about experience or capability. You just, you have to have at least one other person. Um, and especially you need someone to evaluate your dog and make sure that they are okay to do protection work because I have seen a lot of dogs that weren't. And at best it's, it's a liability <laughs> at worst, your dog's going to get put down. So Making sure your dog is even appropriate for it needs to be the first step. And that comes from a professional evaluation. Awesome. Um, oh, what do you think is the best age to spay or neuter a dog? Um, Spaying is tricky because there's like this like sweet spot age where if you do it after this, but before this, then you reduce the most amount of risks. Um, I don't really know what that is because I don't own female, female dogs because I don't like them. I don't like dealing with heats. I don't, I don't want to deal with any of that. Um, so I just don't own them. So I don't really know about that. But for male dogs, um, two years old or never, I mean, my dogs probably won't be fixed ever for their health. And, you know, I'm a responsible person in some things. And, you know, in the thing, if not letting them reproduce on their own, that's one thing that I'm responsible with. So um, I keep them intact for their health. And also because I just don't see the, the reason to put them under anesthesia and surgery um, for that, unless there is a medical reason. So um, 
when does spay and neuter has been a fight between vets and dog trainers from the beginning of time. Um, however, I will say that the U.S. is one of the only countries where neutering and spaying so young is common practice. I'm just saying. Uh, I'll leave it at that. But, um, you know, allowing your dog to grow is important. Mm -hmm. Our um, wasabi is wasabi was a um, or it, wasabi is your um, current puppy. Yeah. And it's a boy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Stinky was a boy? He was a boy too, yeah. Okay. Um, did you want to have male Malinois? Um, yeah, just, just because they don't go into heat. So, <laughs> I mean, that's really it. People always ask if there's like some deeper reason, but it's really just that they don't go into heat. I, I just don't, I don't like dealing with that. It's, it's gross and it's so much, <laughs> I don't, I want no part in that. <laughs> that's funny. Let's see. Okay, what has been the biggest struggle with each of your dogs from Wild with Winston? Um, with Stinky, it was having him settle out of his crate, so I just gave up, and then that made the problem worse. But <laughs> whatever. Um, with Wasabi right now, um, there's no really big struggle, um, except he's been having diarrhea, so maybe that's a struggle, but it's too early to, to be able to see any temperamental um, challenges with him. Um, with Finley, Finley, his gear shyness, hates wearing things. Like, he hates it. You pull out, like, great vote of confidence. I pull out this, like, new harness that I spent $100 on, and he immediately runs to the corner of the room because <laughs> he doesn't want to wear it. Um, he hates raincoats, harnesses, anything like that. He just, he doesn't like to have it on his body. Um, and so we're at a place of, like, neutrality, and that's the best we're going to get. Um, that's definitely the biggest struggle been for us. Mm -hmm. uh, for us, I mean, it's always, she's eight months now. We're always going into, we always have struggles. Like last, the, the last month, I think the biggest thing was um, doing this like reverse crate training. Um, Robert Cobral suggested that we make um, outside of the crate, like very chill, like mm -hmm. no activity and make the crate an event. So, because what was happening was when I was filming, I would be um, like talking, engaging, and then she would want to come over to me and like be in on the action and mm. she would cry and like, it's really distracting and it's, it's hard for me. It's making me anxious. So yeah. uh, like figuring out Reka's mind and kind of like controlling the vibe. Yeah. Know, like yeah. calming, you know, like, okay, this is, you're going to chill, you know, and yeah, like having her be chill. Yeah. So I think um, mood maybe. Yeah. Off switch. Yeah, and like FOMO, like wanting to be in on everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, what tips do you have to start training an eight-week-old puppy? Don't focus on teaching them commands and focus on teaching them how to learn. Um, you know, it doesn't help a dog that can sit and down and in and do all these different things if they can only do it in your living room you know what I mean like building that engagement building that lifestyle um, teaching them marker words and all these different puzzle pieces to how to teach things later will um, do the most for you it's slow and steady wins the race definitely well said okay um, Rachel Evans is asking are you going to spay Rika if not how do you plan on handling her going into heat so she actually um, did go into heat uh like already 
Yeah. Oh. Well, okay. So, but she, her blood, this is the weird thing. So our vet, I don't want Dave to hear me. Our vet is interesting. Um, I mean, he, he, he's awesome. He's very, very great vet. Um, but he wasn't able to tell, like, he's like, yeah, the it, Reich is probably in heat right now. Mm-hmm. And, and then that was it. But her, the bleeding was, it was like actually back in August. So six, yeah. Um, and the, the bleeding was very, very light. It was like very blotchy. Um, and it, we just noticed she was super moody. She was peeing all the time, all the time. Like she would just like lift the legs and pee and pee and pee. Um, and that lasted like three, three, four weeks and the blood of a few days, it really wasn't bad. Yeah. Um, but how are we going to deal with it? We're going to wait because she's so small. I mean, now she's growing. Now she's much bigger, but um, she was pretty tiny for a while. That's so funny. You said it wasn't that bad because I was going, oh, that sounds terrible. <laughs> really? Yeah. No, it was like, we thought it was more. We're like, is that dirt or what? <laughs> yeah, it was <laughs> fine. It's also like it's a tiny little thing. I yeah. Hear, I've heard a lot of people like, the dog goes into heat and it's like diapers and the whole huge mess. So when we yeah. get there, I'll report back. <sighs> okay. Um, they can do slides under the microscope to see if the cells are actually in stages of heat. Ask your vet about it. Thank you, AK Hellhounds. We, I mean, now we'll just have to wait for the next team. <laughs> I think it can become more extreme because that was a baby heat. That makes sense. How do you manage shedding? Do you use any special grooming supplies? Mm, I vacuum twice a day. (laughs) Um, And I should brush him. I don't as much as I should. So I bet if I brushed him consistently, he wouldn't shed as much. Um, But I also take him to get professionally groomed every three or four weeks. And that actually helps a lot because she does like blow him out and do all that stuff. And so that kind of keeps it under control. But at a certain point, like if you have a shedding breed, they're going to shed and there's really nothing you can do about it. Um, Bodhi, do you think crate training is always necessary? Um, yeah. Um, I think even if, I think people see crate training as you use it now and then eventually you don't use it altogether or you either use it or you don't, but it's not that black and white crates come in and out of everybody, every dog's life. You know, some need it at night, but not during the day. Others need it during the day, but not at night. Or maybe some dogs don't need it on most days, but at Christmas dinner or a party, they go in their crate or, you know, all these different things. Like it's a, it's, it's just like any other tool. You bring it when you need it, you put it away when you don't. And um, it's, it can come in and out. And I think whether or not someone plans to use a crate in their house, um, if your dog gets hit by a car and has to stay at the vet overnight, do you want them to be comfortable in the crate or do you want them to freak out? Cause they've never been in one before. 100%. Um, okay. What is your stance on the, wait, hold on, on a show line German shepherd from Echo Bear? Um, for what? A show for line what, shepherd for hunting 
probably not a show line German Shepherd for someone who wants a show line German Shepherd. Probably a good choice. Um, like, it's hard to answer a question on what I think about a breed when I don't know what the breed, what the dog is going to be for, or you know anything about anything about why. Okay, from Golden Life of Luke, my good friend. <laughs> Best way to introduce two dogs, one of which who is nervous. Um, neutrality. Teach them to exist around each other before teaching them to try to interact. Um, you know, going on walks together, but like a structured walk where every dog is healing next to each other. Place work or downstays next to each other. Um, taking them to like a wide open space where they can like coexist and they don't feel pressured to interact. Um, especially with a nervous dog, they're nervous because they're anticipating an interaction, right? They're anticipating that the dog is going to bully them or go up to them or do whatever. So if you teach the dog that that's not going to happen, sometimes they start to come out of their shell on their own. Okay. Um, what tips do you have for someone who wants a male in the future? First one from a, a reputable breeder. Um, the breeder situation is controversial. So I'm not, not going to talk about that because um, I don't want hate. But <laughs> um, as for if you want one, I would say, why do you want one? Do you want one to do this sport with or do you want one to do this with? Um, because Or because you saw one on the internet or, you know, any of these different reasons. Because there are good reasons to want a Malinois and bad ones. And I've seen both. Um, and, you know, there's owners who are first-time Malinois owners and it turns out great you know like you like to train you like to do this you like to play tug with her you know you you enjoy having her and then there's people who get a malinois and because they got it for the wrong reasons they hate the dog and they're like why isn't it a golden retriever um you know and so i would ask yourself why um and from there um talk to professional trainers usually trainers who are experienced with malinois can hook you up with a good one um and i would also say don't compromise on quality um, of the dog a lot of because you think it'll be easier like a lot of people say you should get like um, a more pet quality dog because it'll be easier but usually when you know Malzmoth are supposed to be high drive and so when you compromise on that you're probably going to compromise on nerves and structure and health and all these different other things um, if you are able to have a Malinois get a good one um, because otherwise you're going to have actually more problems than if you just had the Malinois in the first place. So Spoonies for Love is asking, would you recommend Malinois for Medica Alert Mobility psychi Psychiatrist Service work? Um, for the majority of people, no. Why? Because why, why would you take a dog that has been bred to be in the military or um, be police dogs or perform at you know the highest levels of protection sports and this and that and why would you want to put them in a job where they're going to walk around and do tasks every so often you know what I mean like if someone said oh I really want a Malinois as a service dog and I also want to compete in Schutzund and I like Mal's as a breed and I'm a very active person and this and this that would be a great option if someone is just saying I want a Malinois that's it probably not you know what I mean um, I don't, I'm not the kind of person to gatekeep breeds. I don't think that, you know, there's a blanket, 
yes, you should or no, you shouldn't. But the vast majority of people don't want a Malinois as a service dog for the right reason. Mm -hmm. um, what is your, uh, when you are bring, introducing wasabi to protection sports, what will that journey be like for you? Um, so right now, um, we're just kind of working on nothing. Um, eventually we'll, we'll start getting into just agitation and, and working on building, um, um, prey and that kind of thing. Although, you know, again, controversial, so don't send me hate messages if you disagree, but I think that, you know, if you want to do something competitively or at a high level with a certain dog, it shouldn't be the kind of dog that you have to build. I don't anticipate building his prey drive. I anticipate channeling it. And that's a difference that a lot of people don't understand. Um, same with confidence and, and nerves and all that kind of thing. I don't think I'm going to build his confidence on the bite. I think I'm going to teach him how to use his confidence to pers persevere. Persevere, yeah. Um, and so, you know, baby, baby bite work is really just, it's no different than a flirt pull and tug, really. That's, that's, that's really what it is, is you tie them back and you just have them chase it and then they get to bite it and then you choke them off and then you do it again. Um, and that's really just the, that's the, the bare bones of what you do with puppies. And then he's going to teeth. So then you kind of just stop um, and work on obedience and then, then they get their adult teeth in and then you can really start to go with them. So Jessica's asking, do you feel your techniques work for high drive mouths? Um, I think that all techniques that are based in science will work for any dog because all dogs, regardless of breed, have the same psychology. Um, you know, my Malinois works off of operant conditioning and classical conditioning. So does my golden retriever. So does my board and trains. Um, so if your methods are rooted in science, then they'll work for anything. How do you know when it's time to wash a working dog puppy? Um, it usually depends on what the job is for, but usually you can see before you even select the puppy and then you just don't choose them. Um, but, you know, for me, confidence is the biggest one. I think that on a certain level, you can, you can capitalize on different types of drives and whatever and kind of bring out more in the dog. But I've never seen confidence able to be manipulated like that. That's the one thing that either the dog has it or not. And that's kind of it. Um, what, okay, from Lexi Jeans, what do you think of a Malinois for a first time owner, but active and wants to become really invested in dog training with this dog and their second dog? I would say it could be a good option. And, you know, this is my advice to anyone who wants a Malinois, but has never had one or has never had a dog is to consult with a professional trainer who has experience with them because you can talk through why you want one, what you're, what you expect it'll be like, um, you know, all that. And they can tell you based on their experience of seeing it go right and seeing it go wrong, whether or not you should get one um, and then help you after you have one and, you know, introduce you to all of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've seen really great first time Malinois owners. Um, if you follow Red the Mali, um, Jen, I think, I think Red might be their first dog ever. Um, and he's great. Um, and I've also seen it go terribly. So, you know, I think a professional, like talking to them and eat, before you even have the puppy, just talking to them to see whether it's a good idea. Mm -hmm. 
Um, do you see a big difference in normal German Shepherds and a Malinois? Yeah, I mean, they're different breeds. So, so yeah, <laughs> um, I think that the difference for me majorly, at least with the types of Malinois that I work with, is um, German Shepherds have more defense drive. And so um, kind of on the same lines, they also have less um, confidence. And that's one of the, the issues in the breed right now is that even – even well-bred German Shepherds that are confident dogs, even in those lines, there's there's just a nerviness a little bit there. Um, and, you know, that can be very difficult to get away from. And one of the reasons why German Shepherds aren't as, like, PSA and, like, ring sports, like French ring and Mondio, um, they're heavily dominated by Malinois. And part of that is because of the drive differences in Malinois and German Shepherds. Okay, so from Juan24, uh, my puppy eats desperately when feeding. He is two months. How can I correct this? I wouldn't correct that. That's great that your puppy likes to eat. Um, I would use that to your advantage and start training your puppy. What do you think of bark collars? My seven-month-old mix has started barking excessively. Uh, I think they're fine, um, depending on the situation. Um I mean, if your dog is, like, reactive, I don't suggest using a bark collar. If your dog is just barking in the crate, that could be a good option for a bark collar. Um, if possible, I like to just use a regular e-collar so that I can push the button um, because sometimes the bark collar gets it wrong or doesn't correct or corrects when it shouldn't or whatever. But, you know, for the right situation, they're, they're great, especially if it's, like, they bark when you're not home. That's when bark collars could be good. What do you look for in service dog breeders? Um, I look for health testing and some sort of working ability. So gun dog work or, um, you know, like titles like rally, something like that, that proves um, trainability um, because a lot of people who market themselves as service dog breeders do like therapy dog work or like their dog is a service dog or something. But again, because there's no regulations on what a service dog is, you could like, you could have the most trash dog and it, it could technically legally be a service dog. That doesn't mean that you should be breeding it. Um, and I also think that the best service dog prospects, unless they come from a large kennel that breeds for a program, um, no breeder should be advertising themselves as a service dog breeder because you can't guarantee that. Um, and any, a lot of the prospects that I find are just various kennels all over that just happen to have a good prospect because part of the reason why guide dogs for their blind and canine companions for independence produce the puppies they do is because they have been selectively breeding their own stock for like so many years. Um, but the average breeder doesn't have that. Um, and so rather than looking for a service dog breeder, I would look for a good breeder in general and then find the right puppy. Uh, okay, what do you find? This is, I'm going to do um, last two questions. Jasmine, this is awesome. Yeah. You're awesome. Um, how do I know if my puppy is in the crate too much from Algorithm and Blues? Um... I don't really think there can be too much in the crate. Um, I think that, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, 
I mean, puppies sleep a lot. Like, they should be sleeping, like, I think it's, like, 22 hours a day or something. So, chances are your puppy is not in the crate too much. Um, yeah. Okay. In regards to not neutering, I've read that intact males could become aggressive and territorial as they get older, especially towards other dogs. Do you think this is possible? Um, some breeds are predisposed to same-sex aggression, like Dobermans. Um, besides... Besides that, no. I mean, not because they're intact. In fact, neutered dogs usually display higher rates of aggression and nervousness and territorialness because they are neutered. Um, so, you know, if you have a breed that is predisposed to that, it's possible, but it wouldn't be because they're intact or because um, you haven't neutered them. If yours is a Doberman, then yeah, that's that's highly possible. So, um but again, that's because your dog is a Doberman, not because they're not neutered. Mm -hmm. Okay, what activities can we do to continue building drive in a Malinois puppy while it's teething three to six months? Um, I mean, that's part of the reason why, you know, I and, and the trainers I've learned from and, you know, everybody kind of believes that you shouldn't have to be building it and building it and building it because there's times when you can't. And that's why genetically you want them to just have it. Um, there's not a lot you can do with puppies while they're teething except agitation. But, you know, that's why um, during those times I just work on obedience and, and that's it. Please explain more of why they're more aggressive because they are neutered. Um, there's no evidence for why exactly. Um, however, there have been a lot of studies that have proven correlation. Um, and a lot of vets that I've spoken to believe that it's because um, testosterone um, builds confidence and so when you take the testosterone away then the lack of confidence can turn into nervousness which then can then lead to nervous aggression and territorialness um, you know I always say like confidence is is linked to how how friendly they are like it really is like gold, golden retrievers are super super friendly because usually they're so confident um, and, you know, even with like police canines who are supposed to be biting people, the best ones are social because they have the confidence in them. Um, and so, you know, it, it makes sense to me and the correlation is there. And that's part of why I don't neuter is because regardless of why, the, the evidence is there. Do you think it's healthier to not spay neuter dogs? Yeah, I mean, there's also been studies and evidence showing that you can have higher rates of hip dysplasia and arthritis and this or that in in dogs that are fixed and so so that's why um like together combined temperamentally and physically you know i do believe that it is healthier not to um, but again with females there's like a sweet spot and it's different so you i'm when i refer to spaying and neutering i'm mostly talking about male dogs okay um i mean this is just a piggyback oh what are ways you stay up to date on dog science behaviors? What are your favorite sources of reputable information? Um, studies that have been like reading exact studies. I don't like reading news articles, like paraphrasing them because, you know, sometimes they can get it wrong or whatever. I like reading the exact studies, looking at the data, um, taking it to whoever is authorized to speak about it, an orthopedic vet, a regular veterinarian, you know, a nutritionist, whatever. And, and talking to them about the data and you know what that means based on again it's it's no different than dog training you combine the science and the expertise and you get your opinion based on that
Uh, what is your stance on the health issues with show line German Shepherds and if they should keep being bred? I mean, there's health issues in, in every, in every breed, every mix, whatever. Um, I, the breeds that typically have the most health issues are usually because of the breed structure, like pugs and like Frenchies and stuff like that. Um, when people talk about like the health issues in German Shepherds, it's usually from backyard breeding, which is not indicative of the breed, so. Okay, the very last question for real would be, um, describe your ideal dog, both externally and internally. Um, you mix a German, or no, a, a Malinois and a Golden Retriever. That's my ideal dog. That's why I have one of each. Um, if they could be one dog, I'd, I'd have one. Um, I mean, unfortunately, they're like so contradictory to each other. So you can don't do that, please. But if you could ethically and have it work out, that's what I would do. Be quiet. Um, yeah, just a dog that can do protection work and protection sports. And then, you know, super driven, high drive, high energy, um, motivated, like, you know, social, confident, just all, all the, all the things, you know? Mm -hmm. Awesome. Okay. Um, and my ideal is Rika, Belgian Malinois for all those reasons why we, we got a Belgian Malinois and people yeah. Yeah, Okay, I am signing off. But Jasmine, this was awesome. It was so nice to meet you and yeah. um, you answer Ooh. all these questions. And yeah, I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, let me know. Okay, sounds right. good. I'll, I'll post this too, by the way. All right, cool. Okay, bye. bye.